that you have joined us, and we're happy to see all your smiling faces here. And for those who are listening on Podbean Podcast, thank you for your smiling faces also. And um, so uh, you're welcomed, and you're a part of our church family. And uh, we trust that you all feel right at home. Uh, I pray that this word this morning will build you up and feed your inner spiritual man. Who knows that you've got an inner spiritual man, and he needs feeding too. And sometimes we become anorexic in the spirit because we don't feed him. But the person to responsible for feeding your spiritual man is yourself, amen? And so, uh, but I pray that you won't leave here this, in the same way that you came in Jesus' name, amen? I was thinking about writing a song about that, so, but I think it was written about 50 years ago. But, but uh, have you ever wondered why God at various times give us spiritual highs and blessings? Who've ex- who's here has experienced tremendous spiritual highs over the year? And you will have. There's been some point in the Spirit of God, the blessing of heaven was all over you. Uh, and it was, in, it was very intense even. And um, in my midweek meeting, I spoke on the reason for our mountaintop experiences. And uh, this morning, I would just probably like to recap a little on some of those highlights of that message and dig a little deeper as I feel there was just a little bit more to extract. And I so desperately wanted to preach another message, but I felt the Lord say, no, I want you to stay on that just a little while longer. And and I was just thinking this morning, who's ever squeezed on a toothpaste tube knowing that there is just one more little squeeze left? Who's ever done that? It's amazing when you keep squeezing, just when you think it's empty, you go again and then you try it again and there's more there, amen? And, uh, but even better still... Who's ever been chewing on a great juicy lamb bone and found that there was always a little morsel to extract? Who's ever done that? I I know you all use knife and fork here, but it's just me. I grab hold of that lamb bone and uh, I like to get the marrow out of it, amen? And uh, I'm a tail end baby boomer, so I don't like to waste a bit. And so too it is with the Word of God. It is the same, exactly the same with the Word of God. There is always more. When you squeeze in that toothpaste tube, there seems to be always more. When you grab hold of that lamb bone and get the marrow in your mouth, there seems to be always more. You just got to suck on it a little bit more, amen? And the Word of God is exactly like that. And I felt that yesterday. And I wanted to preach on another message, and I will do so next week. But there is always something more. There's more goodness to draw out, to nourish and feed your hungry soul. And for those tenacious enough to gnaw a little longer. It's like precious gold once you find it. Amen? Who remembers sitting around a campfire chewing on an awesome bone? Amen? You don't even want to give it to your dog because... (laughs) But just to set the scene this morning, I'd like to go into your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, and I'll start at uh, chapter 16, if you wouldn't mind. Matthew's Gospel and chapter 16. And I'll, I'll go to verse 13, and uh, this is Jesus speaking, and, um, and Jesus says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So Jesus is speaking to all of his disciples, and, uh, and they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, other Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Who do you say that Jesus is? 
And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What an awesome answer. You are the Christ. And he, and he said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah means, Bar means son, so he's son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, it was not not a natural revelation, but it says, But my Father who is in heaven... So it was a divine revelation. Do you know that you can operate in divine revelation? And uh, it's a wonderful thing to do. And so Jesus goes on to explain in uh, verses 21 to 23 of that same chapter that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and raised the third day. And the, the disciples are thinking, this is the Messiah we're talking about. This is the long-awaited deliverer for more than a couple of thousand years, and yet he must suffer and die and be killed. And so Peter then crosses the line between rabbi and teacher and, and follower and student. Who knows there's a dividing line between a teacher and student? There is, isn't there? Can you imagine being in a classroom and you pull up the teacher and say, you're wrong, you're absolutely wrong, you'll only do it once. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? And Peter said, this is not going to happen to you. Jesus put uh, Peter back in his place in verse 23, and he put him right back into his place. And uh, actually, I'll, I'll read that verse because it's pretty harsh. And he said, get behind me, Satan. That's pretty brutal, isn't it? It doesn't get any straighter than that. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. And so... So we see Peter in verse 16, Peter the man of the spirit, the man of divine revelation, become a man of the flesh. In verse 22, not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And how quickly you and I too can change from a person of divine revelation. Amazing. Divine revelation. And in a, in a moment of time, a great representation of fallen humanity within a paragraph. That's all it was. And that's a bit like us, isn't it? Well, I've got a fan on. <laughs> that's all right. Spiritual dynamos one moment and a great representation of full, fallen humanity the next. And I can say that we're all a bit like this. We're all, could we say, we're all a bit fickle, aren't we? We're all a bit fickle. And even Jesus uses the term, he says, Oh, you of uh, 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 little faith. And that word meant puny in duration. And sometimes we can be great people of faith, but it's puny in duration. Imagine if it was consistent. So here we are. There is, and, uh, and then Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 16, 28, the very same chapter, he said, this is to all the 12. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we think, where is that written about that? And, uh, but it's amazing, or uh, the Mark chapter 9, and Luke, uh, Luke also writes about it. He said, uh, Mark 9 says, There are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And so here we are. So, so for three of the disciples, this glorious event was only going to occur about a week away. Jesus had full knowledge because it was foreordained before the foundation of the earth that Jesus was to suffer 
And Jesus was aware of all that he had to go through. But the three disciples, this glorious event was to occur in less than a week. And it was going up onto the mountain to pray. And it wasn't just any prayer meeting, but as witnesses to something very extraordinary and something very divine. And so we see that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter believed, Peter confessed, and now three of the disciples, including Peter, were going to get a a divine assurance that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and now would experience and witness uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Peter believed it before he saw it. He declared it before he saw it. And as believers, that is the walk of faith. An unbeliever will say, I'll believe it when I see it. But a believer says, I'll believe it, therefore I will see it. Isn't that a remarkable difference? And that is a believer. A person who walks about and knows what they're going to do, they will see it, amen? As was with the 12 spies. And so in Deuteronomy, why would Jesus take three people up with him to the Mount of Transfiguration? He could have enjoyed that experience himself. But Deuteronomy 17.6 and also 19.15, it says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And you will find throughout all Scripture, there is nearly always two or three witnesses to the event. Amen? Now you know why Jesus sometimes took with him Peter, James, and John to certain things. Because he needed a witness. And the gospel therefore has credibility and depth. I'm going to read from uh, chapter 17 right through to verse 9. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up high on a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. That means tents or temporary booths. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Oh, what an incredible experience. What an incredible mountaintop experience. So here we see that Jesus was developing his leadership for the soon coming church, which was yet to be revealed. And at that time, the disciples had real no knowledge of what this church was to become. Jew, Gentile, and Greek, a combination of the whole lot. Up until that point in time, it was just the Jews. And so, initially, there was the 12. Then there was, out of that 12, Jesus had the A-team, I like to call it. Close associates. He's in a circle. And throughout Scripture, on a number of occasions, you see that there are Peter, James, and John. They formed his inner circle. And soon the 12 were to expand. And after this point in time here, 70 people were sent out 
two by two. And so Jesus had a, uh, he had a, a, had a plan in place after his departure. So all, uh, we see uh, Peter, James, and John, they were all called at the same time. That's true, isn't it? In uh, Matthew 4, 18 to 21, in the space of three verses, we see Peter and his brother Andrew. Andrew is a little bit on the fringe, in between him and the, other, and the remainder. And I'll be speaking next Sunday specifically about this apostle, uh, apostle with a message which will be called the Andrew Factor. It's a great message, and I'm looking forward to preaching it. And I pray that the Andrew Factor is going to greatly enhance this church in your lives. So see you next week for the Andrew Factor, amen? So turn to the person next to you and say, see you next week for the Andrew Factor. Oh, see you next week. All were fishermen. All were fishermen. Peter was impetuous and James and John were known and called the sons of thunder. That would have been an easy group to lead, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I was having coffee with a man who maintained the, the commercial air conditioning units and systems for a, the shopping centres in Townsville a number of years ago. Probably about, oh, it was 2006, I recall. And referring to his spiritual life, I was having a coffee with this guy and I asked him about his strong and very, very capable sons. And he explained to me proudly that his sons were men's men. Somehow meaning, I suppose, that the Christian life wasn't robust or tough enough for them. He said, oh no, Jeff, he said, they're men's men. Oh no. We're talking about Christian things and I was talking about his very own soul. I was talking about his son's soul. Oh no, they're men's men. And I'm thinking, just at a glance at the lives of the early believers should dispel any thought of that feeble nation that to be a man's man, you can't be a Christian. I think, what a lot of absolute rot. Jesus bench-pressed the cross with steel spikes through his hands and his feet, amen? Down here at the gym, they're flat out lifting the bar. Jesus bench-pressed the cross. Peter cut off, a, cut off a man's ear directly after a prayer meeting. Imagine if he was angry. <laughs> Remember that in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane? Malchus's ear he cut off in a moment in time. Impetuous Peter. I think I would have liked Peter. A bit wild to be around at times. Or the couple of others. A man's man, I would say. Wouldn't you? Calloused hands, sunburnt face, the Sea of Galilee sailing at night. I'll tell you what, that was no picnic. James was martyred and... Church historians tell us that the elderly apostle John, he was lowered into a boiling pot of oil by the emperor Domitian, which didn't kill him or even harm him. This is in church historical records, amen? Church historical records say to us that Domitian, who was the emperor, and uh, he lowered John into a boiling vat of oil, amen? When they raised him out, there was no harm to John at all. And in absolute frustration then, the Emperor Domitian exiled John to the Isle of Pat Patmos as a political heretic and treasonous person. Amen? James and John were men's men. People think that you can't be a Christian and men's men. What a lot of rubbish. Moses' mother had the courage to put a son in a basket on the Nile and trust God. I tell you what, there's a woman of substance. There's an absolute woman of substance. Jael put a tent peg through Sisera's temple and secured a complete victory, amen? Oh, there's a woman of substance. 
Well, she's a woman's woman, that one. <laughs> Man, you better behave yourself. <laughs> I'm talking about men and women of substance, of conviction and faith and action, amen? And the disciples fit the bill. And so you and I will too. You have to have substance to be a Christian in this day and age. Oh, they said, oh, you're a softie if you're a... What a lot of rot. It takes courage to grab hold of a Bible and walk through the middle of a prison. It takes courage to grab hold of a Bible and begin to minister. Declare yourself in the workplace. And, oh, yes, I was at church. I didn't see you there. Did I miss you? It takes a bit of courage to do that, amen? Is there any courage in the house this morning, amen? It takes courage to be a Christian. And in this day and age, God is calling us to stand and be courageous, amen? Be strong and courageous. And the 12 apostles and the 70 that went out were courageous men, and later on, women also. And of the 11 apostles, James was the first to die a martyr's death, and John, his brother, was the last to die. Isn't that, isn't that extraordinary? James and John, both brothers. Of course, Judas hung himself, but... So Christians with backbone turned the ancient world upside down. They expelled thousands of years of heathenistic, demonic, witchcraft practices from the communities and cultures in which they lived, and they still do to this day. Their own lives were transformed, and so too were the societies in which they lived. That is the role of the Christian, amen? And at present, we see the three disciples, Peter, James, uh, and John, they were all present at Jairus' daughter when she was raised from the dead. So there was witnesses. The three were also present at the Mount Transfiguration. And the three also were present at the Garden of Gethsemane. Amen? And then it's also, it also says, first thing in this scripture here, that Jesus took them by themselves. And I think that's the first note. You need to take time out with Jesus. Amen? You need to make special time and make it a regular time. If it's not done regularly, generally it's not done at all. We do everything else. If it was the most important thing in our life, we say Jesus is Lord. We confess it every Sunday morning unless it's a lie. If Jesus is Lord, well, then you will have a set time and you will spend time with Jesus by yourself. Amen? Husbands, it's great to pray with wives, but men need to be the priest of their households, amen? And you need to be out on the paddock. I call it the paddock. Out in the paddock is where I go walking out at night. I walked out to the cemetery last night. It was glorious, fantastic, because out on the paddock is the paddock of his presence. It's the paddock of his power. It's the paddock of his provision, amen? And that's where you will be restored. That's where you'll be strengthened and that's where you'll be renewed. Man, I say to you, you need to be priest of your homes and lead your families in this way. In addition to that, he says, they went up to pray. There is two mountains which they think are the mountain transfiguration. One is Mount Tabor, which is about 570 meters high. And the other one is Mount Hermon, which is 2,800 meters high. Either way, it's a good walk. Either way, it's a good walk. Mount Tabor, I was having a look. History tells us that the Roman army never really ascended it because it was too steep. But the, Jesus uses it to go for a prayer walk, amen? Too steep, too steep for the army, but Jesus goes for a stroll up there, amen? He was some fit person. When you retrace his letter, even his footsteps, even from, even from Jericho up to Jerusalem, you see that is one heck of a walk to do in a day. One heck of a walk. 
Jesus strolls up there and the Bible says that he led the way. He wasn't straggling behind. And so I'd like to say from the outset, it often takes effort to get to a prayer meeting with Jesus. Amen? This morning we had a prayer meeting and there was three of us here. Amen? Three of us here. I can't believe it. We need to be a church that prays. I'd like to say we're a praying church. But I have to be honest with myself and say, at this point in time, we are learning to be a praying church. I would love to see this place packed at 8.30 in the morning. It'd be wonderful to be a praying church, a praying people. We only meet once, once a week together. It's a great time to do it. And so, but it takes, it takes effort to spend time with Jesus. And Peter, James and John said, we're going up with Jesus to spend time with Jesus and to pray with Jesus. That was the invitation. They didn't realize what awaited them. They didn't realize. And so in Matthew 17, 2, it says, His face shone like the sun when he began to pray, and his clothes became as white as the light. In fact, he says, while Jesus was praying, he was transformed in Mark's gospel, and his clothes in Mark's gospel records became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So it's amazing when you begin to pray and Jesus is in the house, you don't even have to wash your clothes. <laughs> okay, I stretched it a bit. That's a bit evangelistic. But anyway, it does say, it does say that his face shone. And I can testify when you've been in the presence of God, you have a look at somebody who's been in the presence of God, they've been praying, they've been worshipping, and their countenance changes. Is that true? Very ordinary people sometimes look quite attractive. Because the, I tell you what, the presence of Jesus is attractive. Moses was up on the mountain, amen, and he, to hear from God, to go to the people and deliver, remember? And so his face was shining also. Why? Because he was in the presence of God. Your face too will begin to shine. Your countenance, the eyes are the window to the soul and the countenance of your, faith of your face tells a story. So while Jesus was praying, he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured. Imagine you, when you get in the face of God, how your life too will be transfigured. It says too that Moses and Elijah joined Jesus. And you, th and you think, why would Moses and Elijah join Jesus on this Mount Transfiguration uh, experience? And the reason is simple. First and foremost, everybody needs encouragement, including Jesus. You have to remember that he was as much man as though he were not God, and as much God as though he were not man. And so he needed encouragement because the weeks that were to go in front of him would see the crucifixion, amen? The torture, the torment, the pulling out of his beard, the lashings front and back, the crown of thorns on his head, the spitting and the revile and the disgusting things that they did to an innocent person who was to take away the sin of the world. I want to say, if Jesus needs encouraging, well, then you and I do need too. Amen? And, uh, but the second is this. Why Moses and why Elijah? And the, and the answer is simple, because the law and the prophets support Jesus in his redemption and messianic mission. 
Moses represents the law. He was the lawgiver. He wrote the law. Remember Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The five books of the law called the Torah were written by Moses. So he represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. Amen? Elijah wasn't even a writing prophet, was he? But he know he was, because there are two types, isn't there? They're the writing prophets and the prophets who didn't write. And so both the law and the prophets support Jesus in his redemption and messianic mission. And so in the Hebrew Bible, which is the Hebrew Bible is only the Old Testament. That is the, uh, that is the orthodox Hebrew belief. And they call it the Tanakh. The Tanakh. Can you say that? The Tanakh. You've got to put a bit of a roll. Yeah. The Tanakh. Yeah. A throat infection does help. Tanakh. Yeah. And, it, and it's an acronym. And it means uh, the Torah, which is the law, an acronym. The Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And basically, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible is almost identical to our own but the groupings of their books is slightly different. They join 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and 1st and 2nd Samuel. They don't put Daniel in the prophets, but in the writings. But it's basically identical, very almost identical to our own Old Testament. And so the Christian faith is a fulfillment of all that is in the Old. Amen? But we read the Old in light of the New. And so Jesus never came to abolish the law or the prophets. But he represented by Moses and Elijah, but was a fulfillment. Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophets and the law. Amen? It makes sense. And so in Matthew 17, we read, A voice from out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What a glorious thing for Jesus to hear his Father say. I like the modern language Bible, and it says, In him I am delighted. What a beautiful word to hear a son say. Imagine a son hearing the words from his father saying, I am delighted with you, my son. What about the modern language Bible? I am wonderfully pleased, says the living Bible. And so immediately then, Peter says, uh, he says that he wanted to set up tents or booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Amen? As I was saying on Wednesday night, I don't know why he didn't want to set up six tents, one for all of them. And the reason, he wanted to stay, and he wanted the whole experience to continue. Who's been on such a fantastic time, and you just wanted the experience to continue? You didn't want it to go, you never wanted to end. Who's ever experienced things like that? Perhaps you're with family and your friends, and you just don't want that moment to, to stop. And so you help facilitate it to promote the glory of that occasion. And really, that's what Peter was doing. He just wanted to promote, and he just wanted them, everybody to stay, and he just wanted to stay in the glory zone. Amen? Adam and Eve were living in the glory zone. Oh, the glory as air is the atmosphere of heaven. Oh, so, so Adam and Eve lived in the glory. They didn't have to usher in the glory. They lived in the glory. Amen? And so... Peter, I feel for Peter and the disciples because all they wanted to do, well, they didn't want to come down from the mountain. They just wanted to stay in the glory zone. And, and similar to when someone calls to your home and, and uh, you offer them tea or coffee, trying to encourage them or entice them to stay. When Ivan comes and visits me sometimes, 
I like to offer Ivan a cup of coffee and because I want him to stay for a little bit longer than five minutes, I even offer him cake. <laughs> David come to visit me this week and I, I offered him some of Jules's slice because I like talking to David around my home. It's fantastic. And so, and so that's basically what Peter was doing. He wanted to set up the tents. He wanted to make, make him a cup of coffee and give him some of Jules's slice so that this experience... You're just, uh, just enjoying the occasion. And uh, the, the disciples were filled with some fear, it says, but it's a beautiful thing. In Matthew 17, 7, Jesus touched them. Amen? And when you come into that glory zone, into that prayer zone, there's people here and you've never made time for Jesus. I encourage you, just try it. Just try it. Just say, I'm just, Lord, I'm just coming to spend some time with you. I go out on the prayer paddock and I said to Jules, even yesterday, I said, it's not I even pray so much, but I just enjoy being in the presence of God. Oh, it's, it's being in that glory zone. No, it's not your words, but just being content to sit at the feet of Jesus is a great way for God to speak to you. Amen? Oh, and Jesus touched them, and Jesus wants to touch you today. He wants to touch you. There's people here who don't know Jesus. But Jesus wants to, there's people who are listening online and you've never spent time with Jesus, but I encourage you to do it. Jesus wants to touch you even more than you want to touch him. And in 17.8 it says, And when they lifted up their eyes because everybody was gone, they saw only Jesus. So this glory and, glorious encounter, there's a lot of people there really when you think about it. There's God the Father. Jesus was there. The Holy Spirit really was there because he overshadowed them with a cloud. That cloud was the Holy Ghost. And there's another occasion when Jesus was baptized, when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all present. But here is another occasion. And they had witnesses to it. Peter, James, and John, Moses, and Elijah. It's quite a few people that were up there, you know. Quite a few. More than just the four. Oh, there's always more, isn't there? But when they lifted up their eyes, they saw only Jesus. And I think in regard to when you've experienced spiritual highs, and uh, it's important that we continue when that presence of God lifts from our daily lives and we get on with sometimes the mundane things in life, changing nappies, weeding the garden, going off to work, Picking our sons and daughters from McDonald's and dropping them back home or something like that. Picking them up from school. But when that manifestation, but we continue to keep our eyes on Jesus and not the manifestation, amen? Because that won't sustain you really in the day-to-day. -day. Jesus will sustain you in your day-to-day -day walk with God, amen? But when they did see Jesus, how did they see Jesus? How did they see Jesus? I believe they would have seen Jesus in a new light, amen? Up until that point in time, they'd only seen Jesus as the man, the son of man, very much human. Jesus being God in the flesh, it took upon himself the limitations of humanity. He was conceived in the womb of a woman just like you and I. Born in that, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, we know, but was born a natural birth, born in a natural manner with a traceable genealogy, amen. Jesus experienced every human condition. He hungered 
in Matthew 4. He thirsted in John 19. He loved, he had compassion and pity, and he was moved, amen. Jesus was moved with compassion. Jesus experienced sorrow. People think, oh, he's the son of God. He wouldn't have had all these things. But no, every feeling that you ever, ever felt in your life, Jesus can identify with you. And that's what makes Jesus the perfect mediator for all of us. Jesus sorrowed, he had joy, he had anger, and he had indignation. And Jesus wept, just like you do when nobody is watching. As a man, he also lived a sinless life, though being tempted in every way. You think, oh, Jesus wasn't tempted? Oh, he was tempted, all right. The Bible says he was tempted to the max. After his baptism, he went into the wilderness Imagine the glorious moment, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost all together. And it says the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness. How could that be the will of God? Have you ever found yourself in the wilderness and the devil's having a go at Jesus? And what did Jesus do? It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds or comes forth from the mouth of God. Amen. Luke 4.4 and Matthew 4.4, exactly the same verse. But I like the Old Testament scripture when it says, but out of, the out of the wilderness, the glory of God came. Amen? Out of the wilderness. And Jesus came out of that wilderness experience and began his earthly ministry. But do you and I see Jesus as the son of man or the son of the living God? A lot of people still see Jesus just as the man. Perhaps on a cross, perhaps still on a cross. Perhaps in a manger. Even those things. But he is seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Amen? That's where he is seated at the moment. And uh, do you see him in his humanity or do you now see him in his divinity? And I believe that Peter, James and John saw Jesus now in a totally new perspective. They saw Jesus in his divinity, the Son of the living God, the same one that that Peter believed in, the same one that Peter confessed, and now they had this assurance on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were witness to Jesus being glorified, amen, in a glorified state, shining in a way that, like the sun, it says, and his clothes were shining. But now I'd like to talk about the greatest anticlimax on earth, and it says when and it is when Peter, James, and John had to come down from the mountain. What an anticlimax to have to come down. Who's ever had an anticlimax? Who's had glorious experiences and then you say, well, now it's back to whatever. Now it's back to this. Oh, it was good while it lasted, but now it's back to this. This is what they were feeling. And But what a bigger anticlimax also, we don't think about this, for Jesus himself. The biggest anticlimax was actually not Peter, James and John, but it was what Jesus would have felt himself. Having taken on that divine nature again momentarily up on that mountain, he putting off once again his divinity, being clothed again in humanity. Oh, what an anticlimax for Jesus. His temptation to ascend into heaven at that time would have been immense. We were talking about before, was Jesus tempted? I reckon he was praying right then and there. He said, oh, Lord, beam me up, Scotty. Beam me up, Scotty. Who would have thought that? Jesus would have thought that. That was his out. 
Because all he had to look for in the coming week or so was the crucifixion. That was all he had to look for. The long trek to Jerusalem and the crucifixion. Here, he had he ascended into heaven at that time, Jesus would have gone alone. And there would have been no suffering. There would have sure been no cross. But for you and I, had Jesus ascended into heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration, there would have been no redemption for you and I. Can you see this Mount of Transfiguration experience now from Jesus' point of view? From the mountain of glory to the valley of need, Jesus was always called. But you and I are also called from the mountain of glory to the valley of need. Because they were on the mountain and they went down then to the ground level and then back into the valley. And your mountaintop experiences is so that you and I can meet the needs of the people in the valley. If 